Welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast, Season 3, Episode 2. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. Well, in this episode, Steve, we wanted to focus on the thinking around post-COVID, the post-COVID era as we turn our minds to that. You wrote a great article in, uh, in Forbes, actually kind of a lengthy article. Uh, it was a great <laughs> Too read. Too is what you're saying? <laughs> well, no, I, I, it's, it's longer than your average Forbes article, which are kind of snack size, yeah. but it really started, it looked like you were really starting to get that framework, post-COVID framework, what did you call it, the, the hybridization of retail. So, right. you know, we're going to get into that in the episode, but when you when you were putting fingers to keyboards, you know, give me a top line, what, what were you thinking, just to give a, a preview of what's to come in the episode? Well, I've gotten really interested in this idea. In fact, I've, I've got a new keynote based on it. I, I touch on it in the book. It's First, I thought about it mainly as this idea of physical and digital being more hybrid. But then as I started to think about it more, I saw this hybridization appearing in a number of places, physical stores becoming more hybrid, supply chain, go-to-market strategies with different different formats. So I've just been kind of delving into that and seeing some of the trends and trying to organize it mm-hmm. in, a, in a little bit different way. So I got some of that out in the Forbes article. There's, believe it or not, a few things I left out that I would have liked to include because it was getting <laughs> quite lengthy. So uh, in, yeah. in this episode, we get to, as we say, unpack that a little bit. Well, before we, uh, before we get to the episode, we should probably talk about uh, anything that's uh, struck your attention or grabbed your attention in the retail news. I have a question for you. Are you yeah. a fan of the movie Scarface? By Al Pacino, Scarface. Remember that well, movie? I, Are you a fan? Yeah, I, I, I do. I actually had a big pile of stuff in front of me that I cleared <laughs> off before we shot the episode. But uh, yes, yes, I am. Well, there's a scene in it which I love, which is how he says, "I'm making moves. I'm make." You know, he's just he's he's coming from nothing and he's making moves. It, it feels like that's the theme for what's happening in retail now, right? The COVID era is yeah. you know largely behind us. And, and I see a bunch of moves happening. Some moves should have been done years ago that kind of jumped out. But other moves are starting to get interesting. And, and you know, that's what's grabbed my attention. What do, you, what do you think? Anything jump out at you? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of activity. I mean, we're, we're, I wish we've, we've touched on a little bit. Um, you know, a lot of store openings that are going on, on on the part of traditional players and digitally native brands. We're seeing a lot of uh, partnerships. So... Nordstrom announcing, I guess, last week or this week, acquisition and partnerships with ASOS and some of their brands, which I think is part of stuff we've uh, gotten into before, which is just some of these uh, originally online-only brands need that physical presence, whether it's their own stores or or partnering up with people like Nordstrom, Target, et cetera. But it's also, um, I think, an interesting strategy on the part of retailers to go out and find these brands that are relatively new, innovative, maybe attract a younger customer in Nordstrom's case. You know, that's a challenge. But also give retailers a point of differentiation yeah. compared, you know, it's not, not products that can easily be shopped on Amazon, for example, or they're not brands that are carried at your most direct yeah. competitors. So. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense. Well, I mean, that's a great point. It's like they're a captive brand, right? Because if you're not on Amazon, we know Amazon's now the biggest fashion retailer, but fashion is more like apparel, right? Basics, basically. They're a big big basics retailer. So that's a nice Mm -hmm. place, I think, it feels like for for Nordstrom uh, to play. One thing that grabbed my attention, uh, we talked about it off mic, was this uh, big global investment into Flipkart, which is in India. Um, and I, it caught my attention because my pension inv- invested in it. The Canadian pension plan was a big investor 
uh, in it. Uh, mm. So it caught the Canadian attention uh, that, you know, making making moves globally. It feels it, to me, it feels like that we're, we're going to enter. Look, and you got to partner with somebody. You got it. It's not unusual for partnerships to be happening all year long. Right. Sure. But I just feel I just feel like there's going to be a lot happening. Some of it is, you know, should have happened maybe two years ago or longer. But um, mm-hmm. the other thing I wanted to get your your feedback on was uh, eMarketer put out some uh, results on e-commerce. Some very interesting results, right, right. I thought. And and you you said you had a couple of takes takeaways from it. So what what was your observation about their their latest numbers? Well, folks may be familiar with eMarketer. They they do a lot of uh, forecast statistics research um, in e-commerce in particular. So they updated their forecast this week for the U.S. e-commerce market. And there were a few things that jumped out. And I guess we'll put the link in, um, in the show notes so people can, can see because my, my holding up the chart probably isn't going to work <laughs> too well. Or maybe we can insert a, a PowerPoint slider or something. But, um, yeah, but yeah. At, to no one's surprise, big spike uh, in e-commerce sales last year. Uh, starting to see it, or at least the forecast is that it will, it will moderate quite a bit this year. Uh, not totally unexpected, but, but I'd say the big takeaway in terms of the overall numbers is that they predict we're largely going to get back to kind of the pace we have seen for really a decade, which is e-commerce growing in the vicinity of 15% year over year. Brick and mortar sales, despite the retail apocalypse narrative, still positive though, barely. So the share is is changing, um, but we're really going to get into, uh, you know, be at a higher level by virtue of the pandemic, but kind of settle back into a pretty similar pattern. The second thing, and I go into this uh, quite a bit in chapter six of my book, Shameless Promotion, the chapter is called The Future Will Not Be Evenly Distributed, quoting a great Canadian, William Gibson. But but among the things I get to, into that chapter is a lot of times when we talk about well, e-commerce is 15% of total retail or 20% or 22% or whatever, that's the entire industry. And what this uh, data shows, which you know I've known, but they, they really call it out or, or present it in more detail, are the widely different market share penetration depending upon the category. So books, music, games, office supplies, you know, 50, 60, 70% online yep. share and then you get into like auto parts and grocery and you know it's low to mid single digits so right. i think most people generally know this but you know nobody except amazon maybe in walmart is in every category so it's much more important to look at what's going on in your particular category the other piece which we've talked about a million times is you know there's there's the aspect that is really pure e-commerce where the store is not involved and then there's the e-commerce where stores are very much Involved, which maybe brings me to number three, which is, and this has been pretty true, I think, for a number of years, is that if you look at the top 10 companies um, in e commerce, uh, seven of the 10 are mostly brick and mortar retail. So Amazon, eBay, Wayfair in the top 10 as, you know, more or less pure plays. Uh, But then you've got Walmart, Apple, Home Depot, Target, Best Buy, Costco, Kroger as the other big players. And uh, let me give you some Canadian context. So Canada has typically been a bit behind the U.S. for a whole bunch of reasons in, in adoption. But last year, we had 70, about 70 to 75% growth in e-commerce, mm. which is number two in the world. Argentina had more growth than us, was 100%. Mm. 
Um, we had a pretty big base to start from. So, we, right. you know, Canada is just at, I think, had a bigger acceleration. You know, I think if, if the U.S. moved forward two years, we've, we've moved forward five, all yeah, going yeah. in the same direction, all the same trends, yeah. you know, more similarities and differences. And why do you think that is? When I, well, the reason, uh, I think we were just farther behind, and it gave Canadians a lot of impetus to go do it, try it, and try it more often, particularly in grocery. And grocery, yeah. 4.2 million Canadians shopped online for grocery last year, according to my podcast partner, uh, Sylvain Charlebois, for the, for the food professor. 4.2 million Canadians. Don't forget, there's only 18 million adult Canadians. Huge. And that spins, grocery spins the flywheel. Right. The other thing that is very different is Canada locked down much, much harder. I mean, retailers, right. non-essential retailers in Ontario, where I am, biggest province, were shut down for 155 days. Yeah. Closed for 155 yeah. days. The malls just opened up last week. Right. E-commerce had an unnatural lift. That waterline's going to settle, right. but it, it's not going to settle where it was. I think that's, yeah. uh, th that's big contributing factors. Yeah, for sure. No, it's interesting. Uh, and so, you know, listen, oh, all right, well, this is good. Um, you know, it's summertime. You wouldn't expect us to be have any news to talk about, but, you know, it's not, <laughs> not a usual summer. Now, it's before retail. we get to the episode and we – it's retail. Yeah, before we get to the episode and uh, we talk about this, uh, hybrid hybridization, I just want to remind all the folks uh, that we've got a YouTube channel now, so make sure and check into the YouTube, YouTube channel. These episodes, podcast episodes every two weeks until Labor Day, and then we go weekly. And coming up next week – We've got Drew Green, CEO of Indochino, who's done his own deal with uh, Nordstrom, which we're going to talk about. And uh, it's great to have Drew back on the mic. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. So without further ado, so Steve, let's take the opportunity to dive into this recent article that you published in Forbes, this hybridization of retail. I mean, when I start thinking about retail and its evolution over the past decades, like over the course of our career, it started with basic stores who... Or a catalog, right? You had kind of two mm -hmm. ways to order. And then along comes e-commerce, which in its early days, I remember it was just basically like a catalog on steroids, plus people could go and order themselves. But it's really evolved to be so much more. And I think COVID's had a role in the, if not the evolution itself, the pace of the evolution, the acceleration, as our friend Carl Boutte would say. Right, right. Yeah, I, it, you know, this is an idea. I felt really compelled to write the article for a couple reasons. One is that I think there's some changes that are going on, which we can talk about in more detail in a second, I suppose, but there's some changes that are going on in retail that are really underappreciated. There's so much attention on the acceleration of e-commerce and all things digital that I think we're, we're losing some of the nuances and some of the things that really retailers have to spend more time on. So I wanted to get that <laughs> word out. But also it was an idea that I explored in my book uh, but I don't know that I fully got to explore it as much as in retrospect I, I might have. So, mm. but yeah, if you think about retail, really through the 90s, for the most part, you had two basic ways to shop. 97, 98% of it was go to a store, pick out what you want, take it home yep. with you. And then yep. you had mail order catalog, which was, you know, you get catalog in the mail and you look at it, and then you phone, fax, and eventually order online. So it was pretty binary. You know, there wasn't a lot of overlap. Yes, a few of the catalog players had some stores, but not a lot. Yeah. And overall, just represented a very tiny 
percentage. Yeah. Then e-commerce starts to come along, you know, more or less late nineties. And it's a better catalog for the most part in right, that, right. uh, it's certainly a different experience to be able to, you know, experience a brand on your computer, do all the things that the web allows you to do much more conveniently place an order directly, certainly from a marketing standpoint, uh, it created a you know whole different way of communicating with the customer via email and so forth. Yeah. So and and, so, it, and it went beyond the the limitations of the print media itself, right? I mean, I've run catalogs right, before, and right. they're a big, long process. Of course, for big shops like Sears or Williams Sonoma, they've got that process down. But you know, it's weeks, not days, in terms of I have a product. It's a lot of planning. It's a big machine, and then ultimately, you're limited to you know, the ROI of print catalogs and mail distribution. So that broke that wide open, right? We can have a catalog of millions of items, probably was what kind of spurred, you know, guys like Bezos to start creating e-commerce is, wait a minute, I don't, I don't have to worry about print costs. I can have an, I can have no end to the number of items that that's probably one of the big, as you said, uh, you know, better catalog, right? Yeah. I mean, the endless aisle, so-called endless aisle yep. started to become much more of a thing. The immediacy, the changing in marketing dynamics. So those are huge. I'm not trying to diminish it uh, because obviously we we went from a place where you know this form of direct to consumer, previously mail order catalog to e-commerce started to grow quite dramatically. But the thing that I think was interesting for probably the first really 10 or 15 years of e-commerce is that the the distribution side of it really didn't change retail all that much. Stores themselves, I mean, they had competitive pressure from e-commerce, but mm. stores themselves didn't change very much by virtue of the growth of e-commerce. And the supply chain, for the most part, didn't change very much. The typical way, I mean, if you take music and games, you know, things that can be digitally downloaded out of the equation, but, you know, more of a tangible product, Still, and, and certainly Amazon is the best example of this, we're largely talking about very large automated, eventually automated distribution centers shipping a parcel through the mail to your home or office, which is exactly what Land's End and Williamson mm. Home and Sir Latab and all these guys were doing before. We're now just operating at a much greater scale because this direct-to-consumer piece is not 2 or 3%, now it's 7 8 Nine percent, right? But there really wasn't. It's it still was kind of a dualistic or binary world, which is here's this direct to consumer, which is mostly from a centralized distribution center, shipped to you at your home, and stores largely not changing very much. What started to happen, um, largely by virtue of buy online, pick up in store, and buy online return to store. And in some cases, being able to check store visibility or um, inventory visibility online, right? Then you started to get stores and online or, or direct-to-consumer merging a little bit. So there, there certainly has been this growing uh, blurring of the lines between digital and physical, both because of uh, consumer shopping behavior of, of digitally influenced purchases in stores. But, but really, they, a lot of that became um, or remained pretty separate. What I think has been what picked up steam pre-COVID, but has been taken to a whole new level now, is the hybrid nature of the shopping experience mm. and how that has really started to transform the stores themselves and the supply chain in particular in pretty profound ways. 
What 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 in your mind were the antecedents to that? I mean, as I think of terms like omni-channel and cross-channel, those things were present in the before time. I mean, in the years uh, pre-COVID, you had curbs. I mean, you had you had the beginnings of many many things. Even back to the catalog era, you had places in the store where you could pick up your catalog order. Sure. Um, and you had curbside pickup and, and these felt like the antecedents. So they were there. So what's the, what's changed now? Is it, is it, you know, if you were in store design 20 years ago, you probably 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you may have been asked to cooper together some kind of process where people could pick stuff up and drop stuff off. But I, I, what is so fundamentally different in your mind than it's beyond omni-channel? It's, it's this full hybridization. And, and I think you break this down in a couple of really interesting areas. So we get to un- unpack this, like the store. Let's start with the store. What What's so fundamentally different that you need people, you want people now to sit up and pay attention and say something has meaningfully changed in the way you need to think about the store? Well, I think some of these forces have been building for quite some time. I mean, the consumer shopping behavior, you know, I, I've been saying and others have been saying for a long time, Consumers are really brand centric. Like they don't make nearly the distinction between stores and online that a lot of retailers think. Um, but but as more product or as more um, shopping behavior moved to being digitally led, and more retailers started to to build these functionalities, you know whether that's existing legacy retailers or mm-hmm. some of these newer brands that really built built for an omni-channel world, as much as I hate the term omni-channel, but basically said, you know, the customer is the channel. We understand some customers are going to research online, go to a store. Other people are going to go to a store, then buy online later, right? So so there's just this constant building of this consumer behavior. I think the thing that really started to tip the scales, though, were smart devices. Because Hmm. before smart devices going online, so to speak, was a pretty deliberate activity. You know, you went to a computer that was in your home or in your office. You didn't have this mobility that broke sort of that that behavior of, okay, now I'm going to shop online or now I'm going to go to a store. Now you can be shopping anytime you want. So again, I mean, this has been a pretty steady progression. This didn't happen overnight. But I think these forces mm-hmm. in terms of consumer behavior, mobile shopping, better websites, new business models that weren't so stuck in this siloed world, that all kept building. And I think what COVID did was it certainly accelerated more of this digitally-led shopping behavior, uh, but it also made clear when stores were closed or largely closed that Mm. customers do value the immediacy of a store. We'll be right back with episode number two of Remarkable Retail Season 3 right after this message. If you're enjoying this interview, you may want to join us for Commerce Next IRL on September 28th, 29th at the New York Hilton Midtown. Some of the speakers you'll be seeing including Noam Paransky, Chief Digital Officer at Tapestry, Akta Chopra, Chief Digital Officer at Alf Beauty, Matt Garing, GM of e-commerce at Everlane, Alex Waldman, Co-Founder and Creative Director at Universal Standard, Jennifer Patrick, Global Branding and Packaging Director at Patagonia, and many more. Commerce Next IRL will cover themes such as the resurgence of brick-and-mortar retail and its impact on e-commerce and how to prepare for a cookie-less future. We can't wait to get the Commerce Next community together in person and hope you'll join us. Learn more and register now at commercenext.com. You know, we saw so much curbside pickup, buy online pickup and store type activity just spike like crazy. And stores had to respond to that. 
The other thing which has been building pre-COVID, but again, was just kind of put at a whole new level, is these this battle for convenience. And even if you have two or three large distribution centers and you know great rates with FedEx and all this this kind of stuff, you know, there, there's just cost and time. Uh, challenges from shipping all of your products from a centralized distribution facility. And so some retailers said, well, gee, you know, we don't have to think about as having two or three distribution centers in the country. We've got 900 distribution centers or a thousand yeah. distribution centers because we have I mean, all that, these stores. Ex- <laughs> right. I mean, you've got this, I still feel or perceive this, this philosophical difference in when I have these conversations with the retailers, some feel like, e-commerce pickup curbside bopus are expensive ways to use their existing property can't people just come and shop the way we built the store and then i think others are and this is what feels like you're talking about others are saying well this this can be a very inexpensive way to handle the unit economics of shipping plus give it a strategic advantage what why do you think it's taking retailers a long time to get sorted on that second way of thinking i mean you know, one thing that, I, you know, as I continue to reflect on the COVID era and what it's actually meant, and I don't think we know that yet, is, um, you know, demand for e-commerce went skyrocketed a couple of years in advance. It was always coming. So, you know, in, in, as you know, in the old saying in retail, volume solves some sins. So now you've got some volume that make the things make sense. Is that all that it took? Was it the volumes would go up or is there more work here? Well, I think that's certainly kind of rubbed a lot of retailers' face in the challenge, so to speak. You know, when you didn't have your, when you had all this inventory, in essence, trapped in these stores, Mm. and when consumer behavior shifted so abruptly and you've got all this new traffic to a website, it's pretty hard to ignore that. It's really in reaction to uh, some changes, you know, many of which we're already seeing kind of a regression to the mean or at least some moderation. Sure. So, yeah. Um, sure. But I think the thing that's kept, and I'm, I am a little bit like a broken record on this, but I, I think a lot of it is cultural and organizational, and in some cases the way the systems are set up. Because so many existing retailers uh, have, have largely built these silos between brick and mortar and digital. And despite all the discussion of omnichannel for nine or ten years, there's still a lot of separation, a lot of metrics that are channel specific and, you know, organization and systems and, and, and so forth that have kept these separate. And some of the smartest retailers, the retailers that benefited from the COVID time were breaking down those silos and thinking about their stores more as a hybrid pre COVID. Um, but I think now as retailers look at the success that, that Tractor Supply, Best Buy, Target, others have had from things mm-hmm. that they've been working on for years, that just causes them to go, hmm, maybe there's a different way of doing it. But if you just look at the data, it, it's not so much that e-commerce is growing in so much in the traditional way, i.e. order online, we ship it to your home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much of it has just been pushed to consumers wanting to go get it themselves, right? Or retailers just doing the math and to your point saying, well, actually maybe it's cheaper for me to fulfill from a store or I, it's cheaper for me to shave a day or two off of delivery time, which is becoming more and more important as a decision criteria. So I think the data is just overwhelming. Um, Mm. But the resistance, I think, aside from the organizational and cultural resistance 
is is the existing installed base, so to speak, right? If you've built a store for a singular purpose and suddenly you're going, oh, wow, you know, now I'm fulfilling 20, 30, 40% of my e-commerce orders from store, um, you know, whether that's shipping them or customers coming to get them. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, I'm getting a lot more buy online, return to store. Uh, and, you know, actually I'm starting to realize the marketing benefits uh, to the brand from my store. Maybe I need to think about how I invest in my stores in a different way. So mm-hmm. all these forces have been accumulating. Um, there's plenty of models, I guess, to look at now that are having some success that think about their stores in a different way. So um, I think it's just waking up to a reality that's been brewing for a number of years. Let's talk about shopping centers changing, not really changing gears, but because you talk about this in the article. Would you agree that there's a future for A-class malls? What's your perspective around the future of, of malls? And then what do they need to do to be part of this future? So I think there are two fundamental dynamics going on with malls. Um, but to answer your question, I'm generally pretty positive, I guess, or at least mm-hmm. optimistic towards the A-malls. Uh, not everyone, but the majority of them, and generally sure. pretty pessimistic about all the other malls. Um, the first factor is just in general what what I talk about in the book, which is that there's been this collapse of the middle. Most regional malls, both in terms of their location and the way they've put together their tenants, are really built for a totally different era that doesn't exist anymore. The change that they would have to undergo is very, very massive. So their ability to reinvent themselves at anything remotely close to what they've been doing, I think is, is pretty much zero. So most of them are going to get bulldozed or massively repurposed. Mm-hmm. I think the, the A-malls, you know, they have a reason for being largely because they have unique tenant mix. They're in areas of great demographics. And so they can mm-hmm. carve out a place. They certainly have to evolve, but I don't think they need to have nearly the degree of, of change, you know, kind of by virtue of the collapse of the middle. But one of the things that I think mall operators are fundamentally missing is, again, it's the same kind of dynamic for an individual store. They built those, the, the real estate, and, you know, sorry to make it all about real estate, really, because it's not, mm-hmm. but just as easy to visualize, right? Like they built those stores for the kind of consumer demand that existed a decade or more ago, generally. And uh, again, their, their model was all about you go there to see stuff, pick it out, maybe get some sales help and take it home with you. And that's still going to be a very, very important thing going forward. But the entertainment value of malls, the marketing and brand enhancement value of malls, the fulfillment uh, and service role of malls, just like it's changing its stores, it's changing for malls. And most malls have not even come close to dealing with this um, in terms of you know having centralized pickup and for, mm-hmm. for online orders or you know some of them moved to that in the COVID times. But you know again, it's in, and you know they're very built. The other thing that I think affects real estate, not just the malls, but the commercial real estate industry, is they're used to getting paid on a percentage of sales rung up in a store. But if your physical space has a significant role in driving your online business, that's just a flawed formula. You're going to have to figure yeah. out how to, how to solve for that and how to invest in those malls with the reality that they're, they're building brands in the trade area. And not all of that is going to be reflected by what gets rung up in that store. 
Though I guess to their benefit, anything shopped online and picked up in store. I mean, this is where you get into the nuances of of who tracks what and what accounts for what. But if I if I'm in my local, I mean, there's a you know when we when we go beyond a malls, there's a lot of communities across North America with you know very good malls that are B, yet B and C smaller community malls. How can they survive? I mean, could they not earn the revenue from uh, the many many retailers that are in them, both local and Main Street and some anchors that, that generate online revenue shipped to those stores? In other words, can they turn it around? I mean, Well, this is where it gets down to, to some of the specifics. There are certainly some malls that are classified as, as B-malls that could redevelop part of the property, you know, add a hotel, add apartments, add some other things that would take some of the space that's essentially dead and and not only earn some income from it, but mm. perhaps generate some incremental incremental traffic. But part of the problem for a lot of malls is there aren't tenants for that space, right? The the a lot of the sort of usual suspects, whether we're talking about anchors like Sears, JCPenney, and others, are pulling back so much. And a lot of the apparel players um, that had big presence in malls are also greatly consolidating and there aren't enough Pelotons and, and um, mm. Warby Parkers in the world to take that much square footage. So, mm. so it is, it is challenging. I certainly think um, if they've got great real estate and a lot of the good qualities of, of what makes for good real estate, there are some pr- pretty aggressive retenanting things they, they can do, but it's not going to be going to the usual, tenants that have, that have paid the mm. bills for the past decades is going to be new sort of tenants, whether that's restaurants or, or you know, entertainment or, or something yeah. like that. But it's, but it's pretty, mm. pretty significant. And, and certainly um, even a fairly mediocre tenant can generate a fair amount of online business. And if they can fi- figure out a way to participate in that, but I think the challenges for real, a lot of the real estate is um, the amount of investment it's going to take to repurpose that I mean, I, I'm not trying to be too flip about the bulldozing it, but when you when you think about how yeah. much money it would take to repurpose uh, a mall that's very mediocre, then the question mm-hmm. has to be: Am I better off bulldozing sure. it and and doing something else entirely different with the space? And we're we're seeing dozens of those right now in the U.S. At least I don't know so much in Canada or other markets. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly a little bit. I mean, what we see a lot of is is food districts, fitness clubs. Um, you know, more of these large format type things and and you've got some really nice b malls that that have carved out a nice representation in the community and and it's really then about retenanting versus you know listen that you know maybe we're just organically we're gonna have less fashion retailers particularly after COVID, but you know maybe they're different types maybe they're different types of retailers yeah i think one of the challenges that perhaps is a little bit unique to the u.s is there was such a formula and i you know having worked at sears back in the day sears was a big big driver in making a lot of this Mm -hmm. happen there was such a formula of building these big regional centers with three or four anchor you know department store anchors and a huge parking field and so in many cases the the center itself is kind of isolated Move on from from shopping centers because I think we'll be coming back and back and back to many of these issues over the course of season three because they're so vitally important, right? We're at this mm-hmm. this juncture here where we've just experienced this thing, COVID. Um, many of the world, by the way, still experiencing it, so we're not done yet, but we're trying to understand it. Now, let's talk about flagship stores. You, you talk about a hybrid brand distribution strategy. I started to think about a role for flagships. You know that that is there a role for 
anything beyond just transacting? Like, is that now the primary role? Like, what, what do you mean by a hybrid brand distribution strategy in retail? Well, I'll mention briefly before I answer that directly. You know, if you think about at any, any given store becoming more of a hybrid, so performing the role as, as advertising, as a service center, you know, the traditional role of going get stuff and taking it home with you, um, buy online pickup and store, all those kinds of things. And when you start to think about, um, if you're a brand owner like Nike, you know, there's an aspect of your strategy which is very much about building the brand mm-hmm. and not worrying so much. I'm not saying they don't pay attention to it, but you're, you're building the brand and you're going to get paid off somewhat by people transacting in that particular location, but they may learn about your brand and go transact at other locations that you have that you own, but also you have wholesale partners. And so if you develop brand preference for Nike, you may then go and buy that at, at a wholesale partner. So I think the this is not a terribly new idea of a, of a flagship store, but I think what we'll, we'll see more than just kind of the reinvention of the traditional flagship on, you know, on Madison Avenue or Fifth Avenue or the Champs-Élysées or whatever, mm-hmm. um, I think you'll see this, this um, hybrid, hybrid distribution strategy where brands are saying, okay, we need to think much more carefully about our own distribution, both our e-commerce and the different formats that we control, uh, but also trying to get the right balance of wholesale partners. And this is a pretty big change. Mm-hmm. Again, a lot mm-hmm. of this goes back to the evolution of e-commerce, where if you were a manufacturer, for the most part, you didn't have any real relationship with the end consumer. But the internet you know, from a marketing standpoint, but ultimately from a transactional standpoint has allowed you to sell directly to those end consumers to get their names, to be able to do your direct marketing stuff. And, you know, that not only gives you more strategic control of your brand, but in many cases it gives you better economics. So Nike is the poster child for this, but, but many more manufacturers Hmm. are really developing their distribution strategy in a, in a much different way than they were just a few years ago, which is again, it's still a tricky proposition though. I mean, Nike, it's good to be King Canada goose. Good to be King. Uh, In other words, you know, there is some fear, at least there is some perspective from retailers that I helped make your brand. And now, now that you've become a brand, you're off on your own and you're going to cut me, cut me off. Right. Sure. Right. Battle between retailers and the brand. Some brands are, just as a pure brand, they're very good wholesalers, but they're actually not very good retailers because that's a whole different organization to set up. Um, so it, it, for some, it's an ambition for some, I think, I think it's still, you know, the vast majority for, for many is still done in stores and, and how do you craft a strategy? And this is maybe this is a whole topic for a whole other episode, but how do you craft yeah. a brand strategy that, that gets you both a winning strategy direct to consumer and a winning strategy with your retail partners, because you, you better be careful how far down that path you go, because you could find yourself out in the wilderness in a bit of trouble. Yeah, I, I absolutely think it's it's worth a separate uh, episode because I think the the dynamics here have changed a lot. You have to be careful. I, I mean, I, I have had a couple clients in this arena is the retailers that feel like they're getting cut out by the brand and yeah. also working for a brand, a couple brands. I think if you're the brand, you have to really understand how you drive consumer demand 
both in the short term and the long term. And you don't mm. want to get too greedy, I guess is the way I would put yeah, it. Yeah. And um, you gotta be something different too, right? So I was I was on this one site, I won't mention what it is, and, and they basically sell direct to consumer what they're selling at the retailer down the street. And I was thinking, okay, I but I don't see anything compelling about that in and of itself, other than maybe you strip off a few, you know, ardent dedicated customers. It it really takes more thought than just I'm gonna I'm gonna pull everything together and put in a DTC store. There's gotta be a there there, I think. Yeah. I mean if you're just like, hey, I want to cut out the middleman and make more money. That's kind of what I mean from a greedy standpoint. Like you could convince yourself, hey, now that I can go direct, maybe I should go as direct as I can, because who needs these these pesky middlemen, right? If, sure. if that's your primary orientation, I think you're likely to get yourself into trouble. You really have to understand how you drive demand and think and think longer term, because clearly, plenty of customers value going to a multi-brand retailer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're not just oh, the only thing I'm ever willing to buy is Nike or uh, Canada Goose or, or whatever. Like so, so if you narrow your distribution too much, you can really be underdeveloping. The brand. Right. The flip or, side or is, if, or if the theme turns on you, right? So you're you're great now, but you know brands ebb and flow, right? It's yeah. very hard for every brand to have a run without a couple of soft years, right? Very and hard. you don't want to be having to. Uh, you probably aren't going to be too welcome <laughs> when you go running back <laughs> right. to your distribution partner saying, "Oh, take me back. I love you. I promise I'll change." Right? <laughs> right. So yeah, I, I think you absolutely have to look at this as a long term strategy and, and understand the risk. But the flip side, which I've said to some of the retailers that are complaining basically about some of their brands going direct is, look, the reality is, particularly if they're public companies, they have shareholders and they're going to do what's in their economic long-term interest. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot a lot of strategic advantage to controlling your destiny as well as money to be made if you can appropriately um, expand mm. your direct-to-consumer business. And certainly if you look at Nike's results, for example, the results are amazing. So now that doesn't mean they'll always be amazing. And Nike right. is a very special kind of brand. So yeah. not everybody can try to do what Nike's doing. Uh, in fact, very few could. So so you have to be very careful. But I think the again, you know, one of the fundamental changes by through by virtue of of e commerce and by var- virtue of consumers having this world of choice at their fingertips is that it just allows for a whole different way for consumers to kind of switch things up to blend what they want and if retailers are really built for an age that doesn't exist anymore or brands are built for an age that doesn't exist anymore they're going to have to respond and you know part of what i argue in the article is you know this can require a lot of change and most Mm. retailers are not very far along on the journey uh well let's let's wrap up in terms of this what this all means to the listeners. Like if you're a retailer, you're a brand listening, thinking about this hybridization of retail, how do you get your arms around? It's a big task. You've just got your arms around surviving, hopefully through COVID. Now, what are you going to do to make that business thrive as we go forward? What, what do you recommend? A couple of things that they should do to get their arms around this new reality that is, that is modern retail. Well, to a certain degree, I think the main piece of advice I would have at both the store level and at the a trade area or market level is to really kind of start from scratch and look at consumer mm-hmm. behavior, look at 
what's going on with fulfillment and say, okay, if I had to do it all over again mm. and I was going to open a new store or let's say I was going to open a new market, how would I ideally deploy in you know, my given store and a given market? So if I were going to build a, let's just say it's a 30,000 square foot store today, where would it be? How would I configure it? What are the different services and roles that store would have to fulfill with that, with that overall lens of the different roles that stores might be uh, providing for you? And similarly, mm. if I look at a given metro area, I would say, okay, well, maybe I've got five stores in the market, but, and they're probably all pretty much the same. But if I had to do it all over again, would I deploy in a different way? You know, would I have one flagship and six satellite? Oh, that's locations? interesting. That's interesting. Would I, you know, say like a Nordstrom does with their, mm-hmm, some mm-hmm. listeners are probably familiar with. They, they basically have the full version Nordstrom. They have an off price version and they have these local or they're starting to have these local stores, which are service only. We're seeing some retailers do, you know, fulfillment only stores versus, you know, basically consumer facing stores. So I, I would say, you know, strip it down. <laughs> if I had to do it all over again, what would my store look like or my stores look like? What would my deployment strategy look like in a given uh, market? Now, that's probably for many retailers going to be really different from what it looks like today. But I think mm-hmm. starting with that blank sheet of paper and thinking about that for the future can provide some really good some really good guidance. And if it turns out that you have a bunch of leases that are coming up or opportunities to perhaps mm. redeploy your real estate in a more significant way, not only, you know, a given type of store format, but like I say, the whole whole market, at least you've got a sense of where you'd ideally like to get to. And then you can kind of work backwards and start to say, okay, well, you know, in terms of investing capital, in terms of reconfiguring. But then, you know, that's going to lead you, you know, the crazy thing and the complicated thing which is why I say this is really big and hairy in the article, is that's almost certainly going to lead you to thinking about your supply t- your supply chain strategy, your technology strategy, your touches okay, everything. You know, touches everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean the, the role the role of a store you hire. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So so um, you know to try to get your arms around it, I think you kind of have to break down to kind of unbundle and then maybe rebundle. Um, your, your strategy and, and just kind of lay out a, a sequence. And, you know, for some retailers, it's going to be much more urgent um, mm-hmm. than, than others, right? So everybody sits in a little bit different place. Well, I think it's great advice because it, it reminds me of um, that moment in, in Al Gore's movie about the environment um, where he said, listen, uh, climate change is so massive, it almost feels too overwhelming. You can't do anything. But the reality is you can chip away at it. Right. And, and, and eventually you reach this, this point of critical mass where you've not just chipped away at it, you've made a meaningful difference. So start at the beginning, right? How would you reconceptualize the store? What would it look like today? Can right. we do that in, a, in an entire market? Maybe we try, you know, that, that kind of, you know, take it on um, one step at a time without getting too overwhelmed by the, as you say, the, the, the big hairiness of it, the enormity of the change. Well, first of all, I think it can definitely inform some testing of formats um, or standing up maybe some different fulfillment or, or what have you. Um, but the worst case scenario and the thing, frankly, I'm most fearful of. And, you mm. know, I've been saying this for a while, but I think as I've dug into this hybridization issue, it creates a different sense of urgency, which is the, the worst case scenario is you keep trying to polish what you have, which mm. is already decidedly mediocre. So 
if, if retailers are re-upping leases and they're painting the walls and putting in some new fixture, putting in a coffee shop, you know, a little store in a store or whatever, and thinking like that's the investment that's going to get them to the next level, they're probably just delaying the inevitable. So without this mm. kind of stripping down to the studs or whatever expression you want yeah, to use, yeah. thinking more creatively, you may not see some of the um, – the reality is that you have to deal with. And, you know, like I said, I mean, it's, this is not going to be an existential crisis if they don't, you know, for every retailer, like, Oh, if I don't start working on this very aggressively in the next few months, I'm out of business. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that though, for some it might. Um, but you know, you, you constantly have this decision about how to invest your time and energy, what technologies you yep. want to lean into, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you don't have that clear view of, where you think you might need to get to over the long term, you're likely to make some some perhaps irreversible mistakes. Not to play out the uh, the climate change thing too much. Yeah, I guess I guess it harkens back to something you you quoted in the first book, and and the second is that that best time to plant a tree philosophy, right? Um, you probably should have been working on this twenty years ago, but the next best time to start working on this is tomorrow or right. today, right? Yep. All right, I mean, listen, that's a great, a great sentiment to leave uh, our discussion with today. And of course, for the listeners, we'll be coming back to these issues, um, both in with interviews and with just you and me ch- chatting and looking at common or looking at uh, what's new in the news and putting this framework on it. So uh, until then, uh, let's uh, let's wrap it up here. All right. If you liked uh, what you heard or saw today, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music or your favorite podcast platform. So you can catch up on all our great interviews and insights and episodes that will show up every week. If you uh, subscribe, be sure and check out, as I said, our new YouTube channel, Remarkable Retail. Well, you know, I'm always shamelessly promoting my book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep (laughs) Customers in the Age of Disruption, which is available just about everywhere that you'd like to find your books in ebook format and audiobook as well. And I'm on social media, usually at stephenpdennis.com. You can also find me on my website, which is www.stephenpdennis.com. All right. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, the producer and host of the Voice Retail Podcast and a bunch of other stuff. You can find me on LinkedIn or meleblanc.co, or should I say www.meleblanc.co? I, I was going old school. <laughs> you went old school on that. Backslash H-T-T-P-A-R. How do I get to a URL again? I, anyway, I can't back remember. Back to the future. Hey, great episode, great insights. I think they're going to form more than just an episode. They're going to really form, form a backbone of, of season three uh, beyond the episode. So looking forward to continue uh, to explore. And until then, stay safe, my friend.